Designing Digital Literacy. Hello, I'm Tamara Asfahani and welcome to DDL, a new podcast series from Checkpoint. DDL stands for Designing Digital Literacy, which is the focus of this podcast series. We look at the ways in which video games can help us understand the world around us by implementing them into lesson plans. Of course, we don't encourage the use of video games in class and we don't expect teachers to know them or even the students to know them. What we do is take the cultural capital of video games and use them to help deliver learning materials within classrooms that help children understand the bigger concepts around the subject matters that they're doing. In this podcast series, I'll be joined by Chris Winston Longley, a veteran English teacher of over 25 years. Chris, most people don't know this, but you were my boarding master at school, which I know you hate uh, me bringing up, but I think it puts things in context because you were very kind of instrumental in my career path and one of the best teachers that I've ever had. And we've been trying to find ways to work together on and off for the last 25, 30 years, really, haven't we? But it wasn't until the pandemic hit that I really saw an opportunity for what I was working on to really draw on your expertise. But it was a bit of a difficult sell to you originally, wasn't it, Chris? And this is, I'm talking about checkpoint learning, of course, and the impact of video games on education, on society, on culture, on politics, just the ubiquitous nature of video games and and trying to really push this idea that that video games should be used as part of a digital literacy, even though I didn't know what digital literacy was. Yes, I think when you say the ubiquitous nature of, of games, not in schools, not in that culture. I think my age also has something to do with it, that I, I saw it with my teenagers, but I didn't have time to play games and I, and I got frustrated by them um, because I kept losing all the time, which was something I, I couldn't deal with. I would get very stressed with the buttons and things, and I just didn't see the point. So I was very, very unaware I would argue that you were resistant. I was resistant because games... You were like, what are you doing? This isn't right. Stop. What are you talking about video games for? What's this got to do with learning? Gaming gaming is a dirty word. Mm. It just is. It's associated with guilt and shame and, and all sorts of things. It's very negatively seen for something which is so... Ubiquitous. Ubiquitous, yeah, something that, and so I think enjoyed by people, delighted in by people. And the fact that gaming is now a a huge industry and so many people across the world, it knows no boundaries, then it, it is very good at what it does. And so to have that as something shameful and something to feel guilty about is, I think, a terrible thing for us to be doing. And I was part of that. Because in schools, it was always with particularly, and this is now a stereotype because I I now have enough awareness to know this isn't true, Uh, but particularly teenage boys, we all had this idea that our teenagers in, say, year 10, instead of doing their homework, instead of doing what they should, they were playing games and they were staying up till midnight or three in the morning because their parents were allowing them to play games and not control. So we were blaming parents for it. We were blaming the kids. We were blaming this industry of putting these ridiculous games in front of them. And they weren't doing education. It was getting in the way and in a way that nothing had before. So when you say in a way that nothing had before, is it because of the fact as teachers you felt so removed from game that you didn't understand its mechanics? Because when you're saying in a way that it does before, we've had film, we've had music, we've had other distractions for 
kids to kind of involve themselves not in this way it didn't but what way how what would you mean it was much more important to the children they didn't see the dangers they didn't see the damage that we perceived it was doing so when you had a child who was half asleep and you said what are you doing you know you're supposed to be writing or whatever and you get a bit annoyed they'd say well i was up till four playing call of duty and I go, what were you doing playing? What were you doing playing a game till four? Didn't your parents, oh, they've gone to bed or whatever, you know? And and these kids, it was taking over their lives. And I also didn't understand it because at home, we still had a Sega Mega Drive and things because I hadn't invested in gaming with the kids and I'd sort of resisted it. And so whatever technology they had was very old. And so I didn't understand the compulsion and, and the obsession that you would have for some now I, I understand that because my own son plays constantly but now I celebrate it and I think it's okay one of the things that I think schools have to be very aware of if they're not going to get involved in the gaming aspect of digital literacy and it is only one aspect of it then at least stop decrying it stop being negative about it if you're not going to embrace it or deal with it then leave it alone yeah because i i just feel now that if a parent is made to feel that gaming isn't acceptable and they're saying get on with your homework to the kid or, or whatever or get off that game and then as the child goes to their homework the parent goes on a game because parents are now the demographic you know, a lot of a lot of gamers are 34 35 years old or whatever they have children and so you have parents who game and who value it and pay out for Xboxes or whatever, and, and they're, they're enjoying it, but then they're telling their kids not to enjoy it. One of the things I always ask people is, is um, and it's a really kind of divisive question, um, are you a gamer? And you'll be surprised how many people say no. When I say to them, oh, have you got a smartphone? Yeah. Have you got Candy Crush? Yeah. Have you got Angry Birds? Yeah. Have you got anything else like that? Then you're a gamer. And gaming has become much more than sitting down on a console, on a TV, in a fixed location, with a wired controller, playing a game. I can now play my Xbox games through Games Pass on my mobile phone, on the fly, wherever I am. I literally connect this to my controller, and I could be anywhere and playing it. I could get to the App Store and download any game that I want and play it. This is not gaming, this is gamification of life, right, in a way. But the point is, is we're using the mechanics of gaming because what gaming does and what gaming teaches us, I think, and this is one of the reasons I really kind of wanted to get you involved in all of this stuff, is, is that gaming teaches us a lot about ourselves, our limits. It teaches us about the kinds of things that we are able and unable to do. But it also challenges us to push on through levels and it sheds light on more interests. There's a lot. I mean, I've done a whole article about this in one of the early magazines. I've learned a lot of history through gaming, not necessarily accurate history, because you have to go and cross-reference it because obviously it's an entertainment medium. But the fact of the matter is, is there is value in gaming. Again, through the pandemic, one of the things that was really important for me was the children's, especially for us because we'd moved, so the children didn't really have a tight friendship group. So there was that element of a continuing conversation, a social element to be able to then connect with their friends and play with them for their mental health. Screen time wasn't necessarily a bad thing. And then there's the whole argument of 
not every game is Call of Duty, which I think you found uh, <laughs> very quickly. Um, when we started doing stuff, when I started telling you about the lessons and trying to do the lesson plans, I think there was a little bit of resistance from you initially, kind of going, well, all games are shooters or all games are driving games. I don't think you understood the breadth of content within the game's portfolios, if you like. And I, and I still test you. I still don't quite believe you, <laughs> even though I've researched this and I and I for the CPD we were doing. Yeah. Even though I researched it uh, and saw just how many games there are out there, I still struggle to believe that that it's not just people shooting each other. <laughs> and it's I don't know why that is. I don't know whether it was just indoctrination by the media from an early stage, and because a lot of things. Well, I think I think to be honest with you, the most successful games, those AAA titles that have been, you know, when you talk about the bastion of gaming, you know, that that kind of demographic, that teenage demographic, was very much served from the late eighties, early nineties onwards. So when Nintendo started releasing their con, it's bizarre. We actually did an article on this on an issue of, of Checkpoint as well, and how the gaming evolved when gaming was first announced in the sixties and seventies when you had those Ataris and, and those Spectrums and everything else, they were seen as a family event. So you'd plug it into the TV and you'd do it together. You'd do some coding, you'd play Pong, you'd do whatever you want. Something happened in the late 80s and early 90s and, and the target audience became young males. We're talking boys, very early teens. So all of a sudden there was a shift which meant that the service industry, that kind of the gaming industry, had to cater for the kind of games that boys wanted to play, because that's who they were targeting at. Now, obviously, as we know, there's equality and everything else, but everything's moved on in the last 30, 40 years anyway. But as we saw, what happened was that stayed very much the domain of the boys, the teenagers, darkened room, pimples, no sunlight, no water, that whole kind of stereotype that you talk about. Then came the Wii. The Wii changed everything, because all of a sudden, the Wii was an accessible, sociable platform console the nintendo wii that everybody could play grannies were playing it we did an article on the wii being used in old people's home for cognitive exercises to keep them active and then came the apple store and the apple store changed everything because all of a sudden you had this incredible device that could play any games and games from your childhood so not only were you hitting a new demographic but you were also hitting people like me the young adults that had grown up with consoles that were able to emulate their games on their mobile phones and then build a whole new audience so by the time we get to here now the face of gaming has changed completely and it is we start seeing things like vr games now we start seeing things like other types of games on your mobile devices and they're more experiential things than they are gaming things now so i think there's a lot to be said about the evolution of video games but that hasn't translated in any way to the cultural representation of video games which i think is really important one of the issues is and this takes us back to digital literacy again is that i studied film yeah and until i did that i didn't understand film mm -hmm. i knew i liked certain films and certain films are famous and, and therefore you're supposed to watch them. And once I began learning about film at degree level and I started thinking like a director would or like a, a cinematographer would, then I got a whole new appreciation for film and the world of film began to open up to me. It was the same only to a degree, because ironically, I, did, I didn't enjoy the English part of my English degree, <laughs> because it was full of English literature, which, as you know, I don't enjoy. No. 
Um, which we'll do a whole episode. Which, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, because it's, I don't either, I, and especially since Gove went and screwed everything over. But that's a different. But, conversation. I, but I love I love writing. I love reading. But even so, within that, because I had to analyse literature, I began to read, <laughs> and I'd been a reader all my life. But and when you mean read, you mean interpret and I read, interpret, yeah, analyze. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's the whole point of digital literacy, that the gaming world is out there and people are gamers and they play games, but they don't understand or appreciate gaming itself. Mm. Like you can watch television, you know, lots of people watch the soaps, but they have no idea how a soap is made or, or how you construct something over 20 years or whatever. And I think they'd be fascinated by it and would get a new appreciation of EastEnders if they knew how it was made. Um, and I think that's the thing with gaming, that that potential you talked about, that gaming is experiential and it teaches us things only if you open the doors, only if you teach it. Because if you take the argument the other way, what you do is you go, right, I'm going to teach film. So I, I open a university up and then I just show films. I don't have lecturers. I don't explain anything. I just show that we just watch films. And that's the, the danger, isn't it? Because I think that's what people think when it comes to gaming is, is that you have to play the game in the class. Exactly. And, and that's where we're different. And I think I, I want to come on to that because that's really the, kind of the crux of, of yes. what we do, isn't it? And this is how we interpret digital literacy. I think people will be very surprised to find that we don't advocate playing the games at all. The teacher doesn't have to know the game that's being used for the particular lesson. Mm -hmm. The children don't have to know the game. And because of the way the gaming industry is, it's unlikely that they will know it. Unless you use something like Minecraft, you are not going to hit everybody in that classroom because they've all got, as you say, they've all got some of they've got the phone, some are using a PC, some have got an Xbox, some have got a PlayStation. But different games are played on different systems. And so it's like maybe you watch Coronation Street, but you don't watch EastEnders. But what we know is that EastEnders and Coronation Street are essentially the same. And if you were don't to tell that to the writers. Or Hollyoaks, you could you could do another one. Or Friends, yeah, you know, as long as you get the comedy right. So there is a formula, if you like, to games. There's, there's, a, there's a way of decoding them. There's a way of looking at what they do and how they do it, which is universal. All games do it. So all you have to then do, and I think this, again, is incredibly important to say, is that you have to curate games. They have to be. Just like film. You can't show every film to a 12-year-old. That, that's ridiculous. We have. A-teams, I don't think we, we have PGs and things, but people sort of ignore all that now. They, they sort of show kids. It's one of the biggest arguments that I have with parents and grown-ups is it's only a game. It doesn't matter if it's got... Well, it's got an 18 rating for a reason. Yeah. Would you take them to an X-rated movie? There is no difference between that because it's either language or scenes or whatever it is. So there is. I think there's a huge conversation to be had about educating people that ratings are there for a reason interesting games that we use and, and are not mainstream we don't use call of duty and things like that i mean we couldn't if we wanted to we anyway. <laughs> but well we did i mean as you know we were on some sort of webinar with ubisoft and we were talking to i think an italian teacher you keep calling her italian she's french canadian she's french canadian she's I'm in sure canada she's in italy. <laughs> she may have been maybe teaching she, in italy maybe you may be confusing her with our producer gabriella but she was using Assassin's Creed in a classroom. Yeah, but okay, so can we just take that very quick example? Now, 
Assassin's Creed and Ubisoft, a lot of video game companies are really trying to push this kind of learning through video games, which is commendable, but they just got it all wrong. Uh, and I'm going to say it, I can say it, and I'm happy to say it. It's all crap. Because what they do is that they don't find the value in the lesson. It's almost like a marketing and promotion. And you made a very interesting point when you came off that call. First of all, it's a different demographic. We're looking at the younger audience. We're looking at primary school children. So key stage two, key stage three, transition. That's what we're looking for, really. That's kind of where we are. These people are focused on 16-year-olds, people that are doing their GCSEs. So there's two issues, I think, with that. The first is, A, you need to have the game and a decent rig and enough rigs. And when I say rigs, I mean PCs to be able to play the games within the classroom. We don't expect that. We use the existing ICT infrastructure in schools, the existing computer systems, the existing everything to develop and deliver our lessons. Even if there are segments where we can get them to play bits of the game, for whatever reason that is, we can use the existing infrastructure. So you're not asking a school to spend tens of thousands of pounds on new computers, uh, which is really important. The second thing is, is that all they've done is presented the game without the content. And what I mean by that is, is they're giving you the environment to walk around in, but there's no actual learning. And you said something to me when we first started that really kind of resonated with me and, and has stuck and it kind of informs where we go. I think for me, it helps me kind of direct my thinking about it. And this applies to charities, institutions, external organizations, people like the British Museum, the Natural History Museum, you know, all of these kind of places that are doing outreach materials is what they call them. You said something to me that was really, really interesting. Why would I take an outreach material from something like the Natural History Museum? I'm just using that as an example that doesn't really have any value in teaching. It doesn't tie in with the national curriculum. And why would I spend 45 minutes teaching something to children that would take me 30 seconds to explain? So it's about the value of the content that we create with it. And that's what the Ubisoft stuff fails to do. That's what the digital literacy stuff fails to do on every level because people are misinterpreting what digital literacy is. And they're just going, right, here's a worksheet, find the Pantheon, off you go, you found it, well done. What value is there in that? Whereas we go, here's the Pantheon, how was the Pantheon built? What age was it built in? Who was responsible for it? How would the Pantheon have been built in other eras? How would it have been built in other places at the same time? So what we do is we take that subject and then we just kind of explode from it. So I think it's important to note that when you talk about using games in class, that's the issue. Teachers will just put a game on and it'll be a distraction and there's no value. Whereas if you look at the stuff we did with Sonic, if you look at the stuff we did with the track stuff, if you did look at the stuff we did with Sam Oldham and, and the Olympic stuff, it was never about playing the game. It was about using the game's information to relate that content to the children. And you can see, we got one of your colleagues as well to give a an MPQM, or she did her MPQML, didn't she, using our materials? 98% yeah. engagement out of a cohort of over 160 children. You don't get that. Something we've talked about before is cultural capital. Yeah. That when, I think because I taught in a secondary school in a fairly deprived area, the stereotype that comes along with that is, is that the kids are not interested in literature. Well, they are, but they're just not interested in your yes. crappy and, literature. And so, yes, I mean, when I, when I introduced Teachers Dead by Benjamin Zephaniah, yes. <laughs> that really took off. Yeah. But that isn't on the government's list of... Uh, 
of text. And so when you are trying to tell a child or trying to read with a child a book like, say, Jekyll and Hyde, you have to do so much historical education to get them to understand the world they're in. And then the writing, of course, is dated. And so you've got that as well. And then, of course, the GCSE, for any level that's worth anything out there, which is level four and upwards, is demanding analysis. Then you've got an almost impossible hurdle. And I always used to sit there going, but I could teach exactly the same techniques of analysis and reading into a text and looking at structure of sentences. I can do that with Harry Potter. Any writer who is worth their salt is producing a text which can then be deconstructed. And so why are we using something that was never written or intended for a child to then educate them in it? Because although some children can take that on board and do so and they get an A starred or whatever, that's quite a small percentage of children. The majority will just be made to feel very stupid and that literature isn't for them and that they don't understand it and they can't wait for it to be over which does literature a huge disservice because literature is wonderful, but like the games and like film and like music, it needs curating. And the important thing to me, sorry, is to teach the child to read and to be engaged and and to be interested in the world and to look at other books then, to get another book off the shelf, to read something else. And so I think if you can start with gaming, which can do all the same things. There is narrative in gaming, there is plotting, there is structure, there's all sorts of things which you can analyse. And as you know, I worked with the BFI at one point, British Film Institute, when we were writing schemes of work which introduced film, particularly animation, to primary schools, and I was doing it in secondary, uh, because they had hit on the idea that if you could read a film and read into it and, and see the subtext, then you could read anything. It Once you turned that on in the brain, once you could analyse, then the world was open to you and you started analysing everything. And the reason they were using film was because the brain likes images and that's yeah. how we see, you know, you don't... So imagine then a game which is imagery heavy, but also you get to choose, you're not a passenger in a movie, you get to choose the direction. Exactly, you're actually in it. So it's a much more engaging experience. Visceral, and, yeah. But with that comes the danger that you can be so engaged in it. Like it, when I was, I had to be very careful when I studied film not to watch the film. Because if you start watching the film and enjoying it, then you stop analysing, you stop looking at camera angles because you're, you're too engaged. In- yeah, I kind of disagree with that. I don't think, I think you can enjoy something and still critique it. And I actually, I, I think, but that, I mean, that's a discussion. I think you can if you have the skill, once you have the skill. But I'm not sure that we do it um, well, I would argue that if you enjoyed it, you are analysing it in a certain way that allows you to enjoy it. But I think to come back to the digital literacy and to come back to the reading of stuff, I think there's a lot of misconception around not just gaming, culture, really, music, film, anime. Anime was a big thing for you as well when you were at school. So there's all of these things. Video games isn't just about YouTubers. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to set up Checkpoint Kids was to show people that when we talk about video games and careers in video games, it's not just about YouTubers. There are narrative directors, there are artists, there are marketeers, there are accountants, there are lawyers. There are a million different roles within the gaming industry. And what we do at Checkpoint Kids is try to connect those children 
to real life experiences using video games. We've done it with the European Space Agency and Mars Horizon. So we got the children to speak to the to the managing operator, to the guy that was in charge of mission control for the Solar Orbiter and his team. This is a guy that flies the Solar Orbiter right now in space. So they were talking to him. We had roller coaster engineers talking about their experience with roller coasters. We've had uh, Beyond Blue, uh, the guy that invented Beyond Blue about conservation and the oceans. So the idea is to show that video games can be used for a force of good. And I think that's really important. But then from an education perspective, Chris, we know that we put the child centre of everything that we do. But what is it that makes our learning materials, other than the fact that they're free, just had to get that in there so you can download them at checkpointkids.com. <laughs> but uh, what is it that makes ours unique? I think from a teacher point of view, the fact that they are fully resourced, that all the work has been done. If you imagine having to find a game and then find a way that it fits in with your English teaching or your history teaching or whatever you're doing at the time, and then to get clips from the game and then to understand how to analyse that because primary school teachers have to know all subjects and they Ofsted say they have to know all the programmes of study in detail and gaming isn't one of those programmes of study. So unless, I mean, even if you are a gamer as a teacher, your, your understanding of gaming and the industry is going to be insufficient. You're not the expert in the room and, and in a lot of ways the child the yes, students, the absolutely. The yeah, because they're playing these games, they're, they're understanding this world quite intuitively. And as you're pointing things out to them, they will feed the lesson. That's the intention. I think that's a really important point is, is that don't ever feel like you have to be the expert, especially when it comes to gaming. The child, it's one of, yeah. and I say this a lot, I've said this to you for a long time. One of the rarest occasions is where a child will know more about something than you is about a game. Listen well, the, to the, It can be a dialogue, and that's yeah. a better education. It's a, if you're in a dialogue, then you're going to learn. And that dialogue is because the children understand the games. We provide all the information about the game so the teacher doesn't have to know it. As you say, we're not playing the game, so we don't need the software in place or the hardware or anything, because all they do is they click on our PDF and it comes to life and it shows them what we're doing. With all of the resources, as you quite right. Literally, everything is provided. Everything is double, triple checked. It's More all than that, Chris. More than that. <laughs> <laughs> and so far, with the feedback, there have been no no glaring errors, nothing that has... There have been no errors. Been the feedback has been really, really good. As a teacher, when I would go on to the internet and search for information about something I needed, um, there are various people out there who will provide you with how to write a diary, how to analyse Jekyll or something. But those materials are seriously flawed in that they haven't been quality assured. They haven't even been proofread. And I cannot put that in front of some in a child. So I ended up rewriting them. I would go on these sites, find something, go ask it. But then every evening I would rewrite the materials myself. Yeah, you would. And then call me up and shout at me because you were so annoyed with the fact that they weren't done properly in the first place. Chris, um, we're going to leave it there for now. There'll be a lot more of these. The idea of this podcast, everybody, is just to give you a bit of background, a bit of kind of colour into what it is that we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it. All the lesson plans are free. Please go check them out. They're available for 
for free at checkpointkids.com. We are working and we have completed a CPD course, uh, which we're going to be releasing information of. The way in which the lesson plans work are literally plug and play, as you've heard from Chris. Feedback is always welcome. Uh, to give you uh, easy access to the lesson plans, obviously, because they're free, you download the zip file and on the very first sheet, you'll have an outline of what the lesson is what subject matters it's hitting, what attainment targets for uh, and assessment objectives they're hitting for Ofsted as well. So it's very clear for you how they can be used in class. Chris, thank you very much for your time. There's a lot for us to be talking about and you'll be hearing more from us in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. Brought to you by Checkpoint. Download the lesson plans at checkpointkids.com designing digital literacy. Back soon.